Blog Talk Radio. Just anything. Every man take a 
grateful because if it had not been for you, we would not be here. We opened our eyes this morning, God, because you gave us the strength to open our eyes. We were able to rise because you gave us strength and our limbs and the facilities of our body. We were able to get here, God, because you blessed us and brought us the way of safety and did not allow harm to come to us, Lord. We're grateful to again come into your presence because we know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And as we come before you today, have your way, Lord. Let flesh be crucified that you might be glorified, that your people might be edified in the name of Jesus. For God in you is life. And that's what we seek, God, life, eternal life, God. And we pray, O oh God, today that you will touch every person that have come seeking you, Lord. Bind the hand of the devil, God. Rebuke the hand of the enemy, Lord. God, let your anointing that resonates in this place even now. God, let there be an outpouring on your people. We need you, God, to take us to another level in you, Lord. God, we're faced with demonic forces, God. Evil spirits have come up against us, Lord, and we need to be fortified with your power. God, we can't make it on our own strength, God. We don't have enough to stand on, Lord. But we know, God, that your joy is our strength. Fill us up on today in the name of Jesus. Somebody have come this morning burdened down, God, with the issues of life, God. Somebody, God, is in the battle of their life. Somebody's, God, fighting in their mind and in their spirit, Lord. Where the devil have come in to war against them, Lord. But we thank you, God, because we know greater are you that's within us than he that is within this world, God. We know, God, that you are a deliverer, Lord. That you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're no short of your promise, Lord. And you're able to deliver us, Lord. Touch us on today, Lord. We need you like never before. Fill us up with the Holy Ghost, God. And give us a refilling, Lord. But when we leave here today, Lord, huh? we can leave with your anointing, Lord, huh? that as we meet men and women, boys and girls, huh? they might be converted to know who you are, Lord. Huh? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Huh? We thank you because you are a healer. Huh? You're the God that healeth thee, huh? and healing is in your wings, huh? and you're able to touch our feeble bodies. Huh? You're able to save our troubled souls, huh? and in the name of Jesus, huh? bind every demon, Lord, huh? every demonic force, Lord. Huh? God, that comes to keep us uh, in the same place, Lord. Uh, we're willing, God, to surrender uh, and say yes to your will, Lord. Uh, we're willing to turn our lives, God, uh, over into your hands, Lord. Uh, because we come to the place, God, uh, where we realize like never before, uh, we need you, Jesus. Uh, more than anything we know, uh, we need you, Jesus. Uh, while men are trying to find, God, uh, solutions to this chaotic world, God, uh, we're looking to you. 
you, Lord, because we know for every right desire, there is an answer. And Jesus, you that answer. There's no need for us, God, to turn hither or thither, Lord. We need but to look for you, Lord, because you're the answer, God, for our trouble lies, Lord. Touch on the day, God. Break every yoke, oh God. Save on the day, God. Deliver on the day, God. Jesus, we need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We're crying out to you, Lord. We know that you're able to save our souls. We know that you're able, God, to heal our bodies, Jesus. We know that you're able, God, to turn our situations around. Jesus, no other help we know. No other help we know. No other help we know, God. You're able, Jesus, to deliver our children. You're able, Jesus, to save the unsaved husband. You're able, Jesus, to heal the cancer patient. Nothing too hard for you, Jesus. No other God we know. We know that you're able, Jesus. We know that you're able, Jesus. We say yes to your will, God. Yes to your way, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give your name the praise. And we'll bless you, Lord. Yes, we thank you, Lord. And we bless your holy name. Come on, open your mouth and give the Lord some praise. Award-winning recording artist, and we're going to talk to her a little bit later on. Helen Baylor singing Sold Out and at the altar. Helen! Come on, Miami. Let's worship him. Let's give him praise. Are you sold out?
Van Nada loved trucks, and his job as a self-employed diesel mechanic helped this Christian family man live out his power truck dreams and provide for his wife and four children. He never gave a second thought to the dangers of working on engines that weighed thousands of pounds until November 16, 2006. I was working on a Peterbilt logging truck about an hour from our home, and the guy that I was working with that day, the driver of the truck, asked me if I would look and try and diagnose one more problem, one more leak before I left. So if you can picture one of these great big Peterbilt trucks, here's the front bumper. And I slipped underneath that great big chrome bumper feet first. And he had had the front axle jacked up in the air and the passenger side wheel removed. The axle is going right across my chest at this point, maybe an inch or two above my chest. Then just as Bruce slipped under the truck, the 20-ton capacity jack holding up the truck shot out from its position and this 10,000, 12,000 pounds of weight that is on these two front wheels on this axle came down across my midsection, basically like a blunt guillotine, and just crushed me in half. Blood had splatted inside of my throat, the back of my throat when it fell, and I could see that there was less than an inch of airspace between the bottom of the axle and the cement. So I knew that I was thinner than it, my body was thinner than an inch. The man jacked the truck up off of me, I begged him to get me out from underneath the truck. He didn't want to because he could tell that I had to have a broken back, and I did. Um, my vertebrae in my back were cracked uh, the width of the axle. It was the most incredible pain you can think of. I've never felt any kind of pain like that. The very next thing it is, I just called out, Lord, help me. I called out twice, Lord, help me. Instantly, all of the pain left Bruce's body. At that point, my, I went unconscious. My spirit left my body floated up into the ceiling and now I'm, my spirit is looking down on the accident scene from above. The man I've been working with was on his knees above my body. He's talking, I can hear him talking, he's saying things like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But on each side of him, also on their knees, was a huge angel. Their heads stuck up at least this much taller than his head. So if you would have stood them up, they would have had to been like eight feet tall. They did not have wings. They were just very broad shoulders again. Between the two angels, and him, it took up the whole front of his truck. There was a bright light shining around each one of them. They were matching bookends, they looked identical. They just had their arms underneath the truck, not holding the truck up, but had their arms angled in towards my body. There was no pain, in fact, just peace. And I can't even describe, words can't describe the peace that I felt in the ceiling. Bruce knew he had a serious choice to make. I was definitely on the point on the verge of life and death. There were two voices, thoughts in my head. One was, shut your eyes, give up and die, and you're just gonna go to heaven anyway. It was very loud. There was another voice in my head, thought, much quieter, more of a whisper, and that one said, if you wanna live, you're gonna have to fight, and it's gonna be a hard fight. And next thing I knew, my spirit went back down into my body like that, just like a shot. Bruce was conscious as he was flown on a life flight to the hospital. Doctors there doubted he would even survive the next few hours. His ribs were broken, his pancreas and spleen crushed, and several major arteries had been severed. I had five major places, five places that major arteries were completely severed. I found out from uh, doctors that there was a medical study done in 2001. According to that study by the University of Southern California, they've used my case and compared it against that study. And according to that, they can't find anyone else in the world that's ever lived with five major arteries being severed. So I should have bled to death in just a few minutes. So my thought is the angels were there to hold my, somehow hold me together. 
Bruce stayed in the hospital for over two months and survived five major surgeries. Yet he had overwhelming obstacles to overcome. Almost 75% of his small intestines were crushed in the accident and had to be removed. Adult has 18 to 20 some feet of small intestine, they say, roughly. Somebody came in and told us they didn't expect me to live much more than a year. I'm going to starve to death. I was losing weight very rapidly. They're feeding me intravenously. Bruce's once 180-pound frame dropped to 126 pounds. But Bruce's family was praying and his community rallied around him. Then Bruce received an unexpected visitor in his hospital room one day. The Lord woke up a man in New York two days in a row, someone that I met one time on vacation. And he came and prayed for me in the hospital, put his palm on my forehead, and when he prayed, uh, he prayed the way Jesus taught us to pray, and he spoke to the mountain, in this case my intestine, and he said, small intestine, I command you to supernaturally grow back in length in the name of Jesus Christ. And when he did, it felt like 220 volts came out of his palm into my forehead, right into my body, and I could feel my intestines moving around and going up and down. After a long nine months of surgeries and hospital stays, Bruce was eventually able to feed himself, and he gained weight, all the way up to 170 pounds. When he returned for testing, radiology reports and doctors confirmed that he had almost nine feet of small intestine. His intestines had doubled in length. When they test me, uh, they say that the intestines that the Lord gave me back were twice as good as normal. Even I don't have my full amount. He gave me several feet back. Even though it's half as much, they absorb the vitamins, the minerals, the nutrients that I eat into my body normally. Over and over, the Lord kept confounding the doctors from the, from the point of them saying that I shouldn't have lived, I should have bled to death, to my intestines miraculously, intestines miraculously coming back. Over and over, uh, God was showing that miracles are happening. My pancreas rejuvenated by itself, my spleen rejuvenated by itself. Miracle after miracle after miracle, God just kept showing up and showing himself very real and strong that he is the miracle worker. Today, through their organization, Sweetbread Ministries, Bruce and his family travel together to talk about supernatural healing. Bruce has also written a book called Saved by Angels. Miracle after miracle after miracle. It's exciting to just see what God is doing in people's lives today and that he is alive and well and he wants to reach people at their point of need. And so we've got a God that loves us more than we can ever imagine. And he pours out his love on us in such an amazing way that it's indescribable. like I was fading away. Next thing I knew, off in the distance, I saw white light. Jim Anderson was dying from a massive heart attack. The only signs of trouble came a year earlier, but his doctor called the symptoms stress-related. Jim was working 12-hour days as a supervisor at a wastewater treatment plant. But this time, Jim knew it was much more than stress. I was uh, resting in my bedroom, and all of a sudden I had a crushing pain in my chest, and uh, the pain radiated down the arm, up the side of the neck, couldn't catch my breath. And I called to my daughter, I said, you're going to have to get me to the hospital. I'm not going to make it. A balloon catheter was inserted into his artery. He was stabilized and placed on a heart transplant list. But two days later, Jim flatlined. I could see everyone rushing into the room, but I couldn't hear 
the alarm's going off. It's like I had gone underwater. The, the hearing had just, just faded away. That's when I began to pray. I knew I was dying. It wasn't a scare praying. It was earnest to take care of my family. As I prayed, it got darker to the point it went black. Next thing I knew, off in the distance, I saw white light. It was beautiful. Just wasn't blinding, but pure, perfect. As I started to go towards the light, I could see the out, outer edge of it begin to spiral. And I couldn't figure out what that was. But as I got closer, I could see it was the words of prayers revolving. The words broke off going into the light. And I followed into the light. The next thing I felt was being embraced, safe and secure. It felt wonderful. It felt like total love. Next thing I knew, I was looking down the room where my body was. I could see everyone working on me. I could hear what they were saying. There were two nurses outside of the room looking in. One said to the other, why are they working so hard? He's gone. If they do bring him back, it'd be a vegetable. I later on told her what she said. She about passed out. <laughs> then I thought to myself, where's Tabby? And instantly I was in the room where she was. And I'd just gotten finished with that prayer. Uh, you know, use yours, Lord, because I knew that that was the only way he was coming back to us. God wanted him to. When she did that, I was in right in on her face. When I saw her face, I saw every aspect of our life together. From the first day we met, our marriage, the birth of our children, all the emotions we've shared. I couldn't leave her. I just couldn't leave her. And I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord, I love you so much, but please let me come back. My wife needs me. My children need me so much. Please let me come back. The doctors and nurses didn't give up. They shocked Jim so many times that the flesh on his chest was burned. Then the doctors heard a heartbeat. I came back to a world of pain. They shocked me so many times. It's like coming back out of order. Just, just, my hearing came back. I could hear them telling me, I can't believe it. he's back, he's back. Can you hear me? <laughs> I took that first breath on my own. Have you ever tasted honeysuckle? That's exactly what that first breath tasted like. It was so sweet. So wonderful. Not just thank the Lord. Jim was alive, but his heart still wasn't functioning properly. They put him into a, a coma, a medical medication. 
coma and uh, to allow his body to heal. So I wasn't able to talk to him for days. Jim spent the next 17 days in intensive care. He flatlined several more times. And each time, Jesus asked him a question. The subsequent times that I arrested and would go towards the light, he would ask, are you sure this is what you want? And each time I would ask to come back. Jim woke up from his medical-induced coma. His heart increased in function from 5% to 30%. He no longer needed a heart transplant. It was a long process, but basically it was good to hear his voice again. <laughs> Very good to hear his voice again. His doctor implanted a pacemaker in his chest. Just a couple of days later, Jim was able to make it home in time for his daughter's graduation. One doctor told Jim he only had a year to live. That was over seven years ago. It's brought us closer together, so much closer together. Um, we talk about things now, and it, it's whatever needs to be done for the day, it, it's done. You know, we don't, don't focus on things that are trivial. Jim knows that every day he has with his family is a blessing from Jesus Christ. I try to witness to at least one person a day to let them know this isn't about me. It's about their life. And to know that he is there for them. And he loves them. That was 10 years ago. Looking at Colton now, you would have never guessed that he almost died in 2003. His father, Todd, tells about Colton's near-death experience in the book, Heaven is for Real. And he started throwing up into the toilet, you know, and uh, at first we're like, okay, he's got the stomach flu because the doctor said it was going around. Colton's condition only got worse as days passed. His doctor discovered his appendix had burst and infection was spreading in his body. Time was running out. And we knew we were in bad shape when they, they say, well, you need to come out to the hallway. They separated us from everyone else. And then someone came to us and started talking to us that uh, we got to have surgery on your kid. It was tough. Um, senior boy, be lifeless when he was a very vibrant child. And it was at that moment that we were looking at each other. I remember my wife holding Colton in that hallway, just us. He's not even moving. We went to the surgery prep area, and I remember them hauling him away and him just yelling at me, Daddy, don't let him take me. Daddy, don't let him take me. And I went back to the, uh, uh, the pre-op room where we had left some stuff, and I was finally alone, shut the door. And I just broke down, and I was mad at God. I just was frustrated, fed up. And I remember telling him, I said, God, after all I've done for you, and now you're going to take my kid? This is how you treat your pastors. 
And I was calling our parachain. I was calling anybody that would be on the other line to get Colton on the parachain because it was bad. We were there in the waiting room for an hour and a half, maybe. Then I remember the nurse coming out. Uh, is Colton's daddy out here? I'm like, yeah, well, Colton's a, a, a in recovery and he's screaming for you. And I'm sitting there with him. And I remember my son in that room then looking up at me and goes, Dad, do you know I almost died? And my first thought was, maybe overheard the nurse say that, or maybe they thought he was under anesthesia, you know, and, and he wasn't. But it wasn't till four months after we got out of the hospital that we finally listened to our son. And that's where I got to see heaven. No, Jesus and some angels came and flew me up to heaven. And I said, so Colton, what did Jesus look like? I knew that the first person I saw was Jesus. He was wearing white robes with a purple sash, and he just came down nicely and gracefully. Well, Dad, Jesus has markers. Dad, Jesus has markers. I didn't know what he meant, so I finally asked the right question, Colton. Where are Jesus' markers? And he drops his toys down, and he stands up, and he just points, Dad, they were right here. He takes his fingers, points to the palms, then he bends over and touches the tops of his feet and looks up to me. That's where Jesus' markers were, Dad. When I was in the throne room of God to start with, so I got to see what that looked like. I was upset because I didn't know what was happening. What God did is he used people that people or things that I liked to calm me down. From there on, I felt better. And one day we're traveling together and he looks up at me and, Dad, you used to have a grandpa named Pop, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, he's really nice. Really? Yeah, you used to play with him as a kid and fix, work with him on the farm and, and shoot stuff with him. And I'm like, yeah, how do you know that? Well, he told me. A figure came up and he was Pop. He asked me, are you Todd's son? I said, yes. He said that he was his grandpa. So that's where I met him. Yeah, Pop, uh, I was very close to him. And he was my most significant male role model when I was a kid growing up. Kid, but he was killed in a car wreck before I turned seven. Um, I was busy paying bills again, because um, that's um, my job. And he came up and told me he had two sisters. Well, he had to say it several times before he finally got my attention. And finally, I put myself down and looked at him and says, what do you mean you have two sisters? No, I have two sisters. You had a baby dying in your tummy. And I just looked at him like, well, how do you know you have two sisters? Well, she told me. And then he proceeded to describe her. She looked like Cassie, but she had brown hair. And first time when she saw me, she just came up and hugged me. We knew this was true because he said, she kept hugging me. She wouldn't stop hugging me, Mom, and I didn't like that. Well, I'm not really the hugging type. I had miscarried the weekend of Father's Day weekend, which made it even rougher. And we thought we'd dealt with it. We got never accepted that the baby had died. But when he said he had two sisters, I was, I think I was in shock first and then trying to realize, what is he telling me? And so I knew that he had seen her and after he described her, he said, she's, she's just waiting for you guys to come to heaven. You know, as we talked about heaven and he was telling me all these wonderful details, I just felt like I had to ask him, did he want to come back? I knew that I was leaving heaven because Jesus came to me and said, Colton, you need to go back. Even though I didn't want to go back, he said that he was answering my dad's prayer. 
I remember that prayer. That irreverent, that disrespectful, screaming at God prayer. <laughs> I was like, you answering that prayer? Today, Colton is a healthy 13-year-old and shares his heavenly journey with boldness. I learned that heaven is for real and you're going to like it. I was convinced that there was no way to live a completely happy life. And if I couldn't live happy, I didn't want to live at all. It began with a divorce, a broken home. And I believe that through that, my mentality began to form and began to develop a sense of rejection because I didn't understand. I was a small child and didn't understand adult things. And so I, I felt the breakup was all about me. That sense of rejection just really grew. I began to perceive myself as a burden to other people. And so I would take little bitty comments that were relatively insignificant. I would make it into a really big deal. Those little seeds in my life, I began meditating on over and over. And as I grew, the rejection began to grow. What is wrong with me? And so I believe that the only answer for me was to end my life. I walked um, to my mother's room thinking I don't want anyone to see me because I'm so determined to end my life, to end the void, to end the suffering, to end the loneliness that nothing was going to stop me. I began crying out and I began screaming out to God, God, forgive me. And the gun went off. My lungs began to fill up with blood. My ears, I began to become deaf, very slowly, faintly become deaf. My eyes became blind. My eyes were open and I became blinded and I knew that death was gripping my soul. And then all of a sudden, I felt myself, my soul leave my body and I instantly began falling and falling. And at that moment, I knew I was no longer in control of my destiny. And I ended up in a place that was complete torment and my body was burning I no longer was lonely I was no longer depressed I became depression I became loneliness I became a tormented being of fear and as I began looking out and I saw all of these other people and everybody was screaming in pain, the, the mutual thing that everyone shared there was their desire to scream out to everybody on earth, do not come here. Acknowledge that life is about Jesus Christ. Eternity is real and hell is real and heaven is real and how you live your life will determine where you go and everybody cried out that their loved ones would hear the truth I saw the hand of God literally come down and at that moment I knew that he was coming for me and his hand picked me up and instantaneously I was no longer a being of tormented sin. 
I now was a being being cleansed. And God took me over the heavens. It was beyond peaceful and gorgeous and magnificent. However, I was not allowed to stay and I was certainly not allowed to see anything specific. But I was able to feel His presence in His entirety. I was able to feel perfect serenity. I was able to feel joy for the first time. Complete, whole joy. And this hand just began to bring me back into the universe. And I saw myself coming back to my home and went through the ceiling. And the hand just went and placed me gently back into my physical body. And he went up and I opened my eyes and I saw him go up. And instantly, I knew at that moment, God loved me. I called out on his name and I asked for him to forgive me. And he did. And at that moment, I was given a spiritual strength that I had never known. I was given joy that I had never had. I was given peace that I knew would take me through what I was about to face. The bullet had missed my heart um, by less than a fourth of an inch, I mean, just you know, by millimeters there, and has explained that you know, the pressure of a 38 caliber gun should have exploded my heart. And they didn't understand that there was nothing wrong with me. They had broke a few of my ribs, and that was all. When you leave this earth, you are going to do one or two things. Either you are going to be transformed into a being of sin and torment, or you are going to be transformed into a being of light and love and joy. And it is a personal responsibility who and what you are going to be transformed into. And I had to learn how to take on the responsibility and quit blaming others for my mental and emotional condition. Now I'm full of joy. Now I am full of peace. I am who God says I am. I am loved. I am adopted into the kingdom of Christ. You know, God sees me that I am his child and all that he has is mine. I just have to be able to receive it. And I have to be able to recognize and replace my junk with his greatness. As long as I stand on the promises of God and I allow his presence in my life, I can conquer anything and I can go through my problems with peaceful sleep. I can go with them with joy and strength beyond all comprehension. And I can come out on the other side full of hope and a victory in Christ. I'm ashamed to be a woman. God made a mistake to create me a woman. I wanted to be a man. Amy Gazelle grew up in Syria, born to a Muslim family. Her parents and religious leaders taught her women had little value. Many times I've been beaten up for asking questions. Why I am created unclean woman? Why uh, that God created me less intelligent and, I, and men have dominion over me? According to her family's beliefs, a woman had no guarantee where she'd spend eternity, even if she lived a good life. There is no grace in, in Islam faith. So a lot of women in that culture, they do their best to be a good woman, but they're deep in their heart, they are desperate for God that he may accept them and, and allow them to go to heaven. Amy was never at peace with Islam. I read the Quran and I feel like an evil spirit or someone has his hand on my, my neck and shocking me. At 18, Amy and her family moved from Syria to Egypt. There, she openly renounced Islam. I stopped praying 
I stopped fasting. I stopped, uh, you know, uh, be involved in any uh, sort of, of uh, ceremony or any sort of, of religion practice. Amy learned English in college and took a job with a travel agency. While on business in the United States, she met and married an American Muslim doctor, but her husband began abusing her six months into their marriage. Even he was a religious man, but he has the mentality of Muhammad, controlling women, and I've been verbally many times very, very, very bad abused. After almost three years of marriage, Amy and her husband divorced. I felt like failure because I failed in everything I have done. I lost myself totally. I didn't know why I'm living here and why should I live? Why should I continue to live? On top of that, she was plagued with the Islamic idea of hell. I feel like I'm gonna die and uh, God's gonna send his angel to torch me, to torment me in the grave. I could not sleep and Nobody wants to be friend to me because my face looks so miserable, bitterness, uh, resentment in my heart against anybody. And I became feeling I'm a victim of everybody. And I was, I felt like if I have the courage to kill myself, I would do it. When one of Amy's co-workers invited her to church, she agreed to go. But she couldn't believe that Jesus was God. It was so confusing to me. He is God, he is the son of God, and he's man also in the same time. And I said, God, I'm not gonna be deceived again. And if Jesus is truly, he's your son, and he is God, and he's the son of God, and he died on the cross for me to be forgiven, you must prove it to me. A few months later, Amy became very ill with gallstones. As she lay in the hospital waiting for surgery, she called out to Jesus. Jesus, I know you, you have healed a lot of people in the past, and would you please come and heal me, if you are true? I am broken financially, I am alone, I don't have family to take care of me, and I cannot just survive during this situation alone. After I finish my asking in my request of Jesus. The room was full of light. And out of that light, Jesus came to me in real human body. And he stretched his hands, and he was close to me standing by my bed. And he said, come to me, who are weary and carry heavy burden. I will give you rest. The words she heard in that hospital room were the same that Jesus had spoken in Matthew 11. But Amy had never read these verses. I saw the nails in his wrist. That's the way they describe it to me, that he died on the cross. And he, he truly, when he appeared to me, there is no one will deny him that he is not God. I felt like I am so dirty and so full of sin. And he is holy. He is righteous. He's beautiful. Doctors ran a scan to check Amy's gallstones again before surgery. They couldn't find any. I am healed because Jesus healed me. The result of the, of the test came negative. There is no stone, there is no infection, and they test me physically and they let me go. 
Amy started reading the Bible and went back to church with her friend. So it was here in my heart. It just um, that that I need to make commitment and declaration that I am a Christian and I'm going to follow Christ. And I felt like something has been changed in my life. You know, you feel like your life has been completely changed. You feel like you are renewed. You are renewed. And that's how I felt. Amy was baptized. And her relationship with Christ freed her from the lies she learned as a child. It's given me eternal life that guarantees I am for God. I am set free. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not the woman that I've been created less intelligence and have dominion over me by men. There is no dominion over me anymore. I have the power of God Almighty to walk every day in life. I'm not going to go to hell. Hell is not for me anymore. That's out of my life. And I totally live in the light. And I know I'm going to be for eternal life with Jesus. couldn't catch my breath. It was getting shallower and shallower, and I can remember saying to myself, Oh 
And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priests' feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the ark of the covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan, until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people, according to all that Moses commanded Joshua, and the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over, that the ark of the Lord passed over, and the priests in the presence of the people. And the children of Reuben, and the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, passed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses spake unto them. About forty thousand prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place, and flowed over all his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you, until ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we were gone over that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever.
Look, Durham, I don't have an old church here, and, and I don't have a tambourine even. I, I don't have an old building, so I had to bring it along with me. Jake, start rolling now. I'll have my medicine now. Chapter 5. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites which were on the side of the Jordan westward and all the kings of the Canaanites which were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over that their heart melted neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. At that time the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives, and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not shew them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us, a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month, that even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes, and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and, behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us, or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay. But as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. passage of Daniel, very familiar passage, 
steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. They are new every morning. Great is thy faith. Fullness, O oh Lord, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thy compassion, they fail now. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy Faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Every time I wake up in the morning, brand new mercy. Brand new mercy I see All I have ever needed Thy hand has provided Hallelujah. Great is thy faithfulness. Anybody here know he's been faithful? Great is thy Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. 
I want to preach, try to preach from verse 25. But let me back up to verse 24 to get a running head start. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and stood up in haste. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. And he said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. Verse 25, he said, Lo, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods he says lo I see four men loosed walking about in the midst of the fire without harm and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You may be seated. I would like to talk tonight from the thought how to function in the midst of the fire. How to function in the midst of the fire. One of my favorite movies I watch just about once a month is Tombstone. Um... Kurt Russell plays Wyatt Earp. Val Kilmer plays Doc Holliday. At the end of that movie, Val Kilmer's character, Doc Holliday, is in the hospital in Colorado. Kurt Russell's character, Wyatt Earp, comes to see him. And Doc is trying to get Kurt, because they are good friends, trying to get Wyatt Earp to go on and live his life. He says, go. Stop worrying about me. I'm all right. And Doc Holliday looks up at Wyatt Earp and says, What do you want out of life? Wyatt Earp responds by saying, I just want to live a normal life. Doc Holliday says to Wyatt Earp in response, There is no such thing as a normal life. What a statement. What a statement that somebody in this room or maybe somebody you and I know needs to hear tonight that there is no such thing as a normal life. There is no 
small house with a white picket fence. Happy marriage with 2.5 children. I know that's what all of us wrote in our journals in English 4, where we wanted to be in 20 or 30 years. I want to be married. I want to have a, a nice cottage in the country with 2.5 children. Uh, I'll have a truck. My wife will have a car, you know, and, and all of that. And that, that. That's not life. In life, there are some boars missing off of the fence. The marriage... <laughs> is on the rocks. One of your children is on drugs. The other one is pregnant early. They keep moving out but coming back in the house. Somebody has just defeated cancer. Lost a job. Corporate downsizing. There is no such thing as a normal life. Matter of fact, the temperature of life is rarely just right. It's always too hot or it's too cold. The only time temperature is just right is either pre or post storm. Whenever it feels just right, there's either a storm coming or one just left. I want to share that with somebody in here tonight. Man, there's no, if your husband or your spouse are acting right, right, your children going crazy. Your husband and your children acting right, your job. If your husband, your children, and your job acting right, your vehicle. It's always something. One of my favorite preachers who has gone home to be with the Lord now, one of your own, Dr. Al Patterson, says that there is no house in the country that can hang a sign outside that says no hurt here. Job says man or woman born of a woman are of a few days and they are full of trouble. I want to share that with somebody tonight who's waiting on things to be normal. It ain't going to never be normal. You're waiting on things to get right just before you start, you know, uh, um, participating in ministry. Things going to get right after a while and then I'm going to be a part. No, I ain't going to never get right. When things get better, I'm going to shout. I can't wait till things get better. I'm going to get just right. And the choir sang that song. One of these days, oh, I'm going to tear the church up. Just shouting. Well, because when things get just right, listen, let me tell you something. If you're going to shout, make up in your mind that you're going to go ahead and shout because, the, 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 listen, the music will never be just right. The sermon will never be just right. The context will never be just right. For you to do what the Lord has called you to do. So I'm attracted to this verse tonight. 
And what I'm attracted to is everything that takes place inside the fire. Now let me say this uh, just in case, because I might get too excited at the end, and I might not get a chance to say this, so let me just say this right now. They do get out. They do get out. Um, just in case I don't get a chance to say that by the end of the message, I'm telling you now, they do get out. But would you look at all of the stuff that takes place while they are still in the fire? Of course, this is a small caption of, of what's really going on in the book of Daniel, the entire book. Um, they, the, the children of Israel have been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. He's brought these princes uh, back to Babylon, changed their name, um, and he's brought them there, and, and they are there, and God is not getting them out. They've got about a 70-year stint that they're going to have to stay in Babylon so all of the stuff that happens in the book of Daniel is while they are still in their circumstance or situation. They bring them, they change their names, and you know that even though these fellows are, are um, they, they don't have the same diet as everybody else, the Lord blesses them to be fatter and finer than everybody just off of vegetables and water while they're in. Um, they, they, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and God speaks to them and they interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar so they are promoted while they're in. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes up with this idea, of course, he's going to build this big statue. And even though uh, they are no longer in Jerusalem and, and it looks like God has not necessarily heard their prayer, they are still faithful to God by saying that even though you've taken us away from Jerusalem, we still know who our God is. And even though you've called us out of our name, we still know who our God is. And we refuse to worship you even though God has not done for us what we think He ought to do for us. He hadn't gotten us out yet. But we're still faithful. We will not worship your golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if y'all not going to worship my golden image, then we're going to burn you up. And they heated up the flame seven times hotter and threw these boys in. And the Bible says that they fell down in the fire. And the men that threw them in burned up. And Nebuchadnezzar evidently couldn't sleep well that night. And tossing and turning, wakes up and looks up in the fire in the morning and says, y'all come here. Did y'all do something last night when I wasn't looking? Did you? How many did we throw in? They said we threw in three. He said, well, why is it that I see four loose? 
and walking in the midst of the fire and they have no harm. And the fourth one looks like no human I've ever seen before. He looks like somebody who has a divine gene pool. Sui generis. And the Bible says he gets them out. But now back up just a little bit and I'm going to be through in a second. He says, how many did we throw in? They said three. He says, lo, I see four. I see four. That's my first point right there. I, said, I see four. One of the reasons I think God does not get you out of the fire is for observation. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. See, fire gives light. And, 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 and here it is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I see. And what I see now, I couldn't see before. I see now what I couldn't see before. And I would never have seen it. If they weren't in the fire. God creates circumstances. For the saint to be seen. You're wondering why you're in the fire and God hadn't gotten you out. God wants you to be seen. See, let me tell you. You are trying to sign up for one of God's secret agents. You don't want nobody to know you're saved. don't want nobody to know that you're a child of God. You don't want nobody to know that you're a believer in Christ. So the Lord puts you in a fiery situation so that people can see who you really are. You ain't in the fire for you. You're in the fire so that somebody... Because see, people don't see you in church. They don't see you in here. Everybody looks like a Christian in here. But it's when you're in fiery situations, when things go bad and you say, I trust in God. We, we did a study. We did a study uh, at church on the book of James. The book of James, the New Testament book of James. Did you know James is the brother of Jesus? But the thing I found out about it was James did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the only reason James believed was because he saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus is his brother. And he doesn't even believe that his brother is the Christ until he sees him crucified, buried, and resurrected. He doesn't even believe that his brother is the Christ until he sees his brother go through and come out something. I want to help somebody. You got some folk, they ain't caring about how much you're talking about how you love the Lord and he heard your cry. They want to see you go through something and come out the other side and then they'll know you're a child of the king. Low eye. See, you're in the fire so that people can see who you really are. 
Lo, I see four. Now, I, I, let me just throw this one in. I'm not going to deal with it too much. Um, there, there is not just observation, but there is congregation. Now, I don't want to deal with that long. Um, I will talk about the fourth person, but I want to stop for a minute and talk about three of them real quick. Uh, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fire together. Now, let me tell you how you're going to make it out of what you're in. You got to quit being so antisocial. You're sitting there thinking you're the only one on the road that's going through something. Well, there's somebody on the road with you that's going through something too. They're just smiling. So just smile and fake with them. I mean, you know. But that, that's a minor point. I don't want to deal with that, that, that key. Uh, observation, I see four. Um, but here's, here's the major thing. They're loose. So you're in the fire not just for observation and congregation, but liberation. He says they're loose. He says they're loose. Now, you can't appreciate that until you read the previous verse that said they threw them in bound. But the fire that was meant to burn them up, set them free. Because I got some real Christians in here, about five of y'all, I'll make six, who can testify you had some stuff in your life that you couldn't get rid of until you went through the fire. There they go. Some of it was some sin, and others was some stuff that so easily beset us. If I was in a full gospel church tonight, I'd say that some of you haven't been through the fire because you're still bound by public opinion. That's why you haven't waved your hand yet. You ain't said amen because you worried about what somebody going to say. But there are some of you who've been through the fire. You ain't worried about what anybody going to say. God has been good to you. Matter of fact, you took your shoes off as soon as you got in here. You ain't worried about, hey, hey. I'm free. God had to burn some stuff off of us. Hold on, wait a minute. Y'all want to shout again? Listen. Bible says that the men that threw them in got burned up. The fire doesn't just burn stuff off of you. The fire will burn some people off of you. I had some people I thought I could never get rid of.
I'm trying to hurry. Observation. Congregation. Liberation. Now here's what we read. They're walking in the midst. Did you catch it? He says, I see them in there walking around. Can I take this off? Yes, sir. Okay. They're walking around in the midst of the fire. I call this resurrection. Now, I got to stretch into the New Testament to get this. Um, the word resurrection, um, um, I think it's anastemi or anestemi. Don't worry about that. Let me give you a definition. It's a compound Greek word. Anna means again. Asteme means to stand. So the resurrection is the standing up again. Hold on, wait a minute. We didn't interpret it right. We thought the resurrection was the Lord walking out of the tomb. But by definition, it's not the Lord walking out of the tomb. It's the Lord standing up in the tomb. For God... To get you out and then stand you up makes him look like a wimp. But if he can stand you up while you're in it, it makes him look like God. See, some of y'all waiting until you get out. You gotta learn to stand up while you're on the inside. They're walking around in that thing. See, y'all read the Bible, but you don't read it right. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you're sitting there saying, Lord, I'm ready to eat. And the Lord is saying, wait a minute. Well, Lord, what am I waiting for? I'm waiting on some more enemies to show up. Soon as you get some more haters in your life, I'm going to serve you. Because I've got to serve you in their face. I've got to bless you in their face. Now, I don't know if y'all talk to your neighbor down here in Houston, but up in Shreveport, where I'm from and where I preach every now and then, we've got to engage in conversation with our neighbor. Look at your neighbor and say, walk in it. They ain't going to stop hating you on your job. You might as well walk. I wish I had some help in here. Things ain't going to never get perfect. You might as well walk. Listen, because you've got to learn how to walk in it before you walk out of it. I hate to tell you this, but things ain't going to get no better. So you might as well walk in it. Just because things don't get any better don't mean you can't get any better. 
I'm trying to hurry. Observation, congregation, liberation, resurrection. They're walking in the midst of the fire. And look what he says. He says, and they have no harm. That's protection. They're in the fire. When they get out, they're not even smelling smoky. Let the church say protection. God ain't got to move your enemies to protect you. He ain't even got to stop your enemies from working. Y'all sang the song, but y'all haven't thought about it. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Doesn't say it ain't going to be formed. just says it ain't going to prosper because the Lord knows how to protect you. I, I wondered one time, how in the world, you know, because the old preacher said that, that he took a big Hosanna fan and fanned the flames. But again, the cords burned off. And the people threw them in, so that's not the case. But I went to, I, I remembered 8th grade, ninth grade physical science. You know, they got the element chart up there and got all the elements. If I remember in 8th in, in grade physical science that if you take an element and you heat it to like 215 degrees and you dip it into a fire that's only burning 150 degrees, the element will not be impacted by the fire. Again, you heat it up 215 degrees, put it in a fire that's only burning 150 degrees, the element will not be impacted. Now let me tell you what happened. Nebuchadnezzar heated up the fire seven times hotter. God heated up the Hebrew boys eight times hotter. That's what I call, I'm going to make up a word, okay? It's, I call it evolutionary grace. Evolutionary grace. It's the grace that causes you to evolve in order to meet the need of the moment. I wish I had some help in here. So that if your trouble is, is, is seven times hotter, God will by His grace evolve you so that you can handle. Is there anybody up in here that can testify that the reason that I'm here today is because of God's evolutionary grace? I thought I couldn't take it. I thought I couldn't handle it. But God gave me the grace to deal with it. Let me close. This is the problem. This is the problem in here tonight. This is the problem. That God protected them so. Until when they came out. If they didn't tell you that they had been in. Nobody would know it. That's the problem in here tonight. You're looking so good. Until unless you tell that person beside you. 
that the Lord had brought you out of the fire, they won't even know. Macy's, the barber shop, the beauty salon, Billards and, 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 and Saks Fifth Avenue have messed up worship because y'all look so good it looks like you ain't never been through nothing. That's why when you sit down you got to tell somebody your testimony. Hey, I know I don't look like it but I've been through hell this week. I know I don't look like it but I've been through the storm and the rain. Because that's just how good God is. I don't look like what I've been through. Is there Shadrach in the house tonight? Is there Meshach in the house tonight? Is there an Abednego in the house tonight? That didn't testify I don't look like what I've been through. Low IC4, vitamin E flat, and I'm, I'm trying to go. Low IC4. Loose. Walking. In the midst of the fire. And they have no harm. And the fourth one. Looks like sui generis. Sui meaning one. Generis where we get gene pool from. He says, I see somebody that has a different gene pool. I see somebody who has no earthly match. When, when you talk about Emmett Smith, you just got to mention Walter Payton. He has an earthly match. When, when you talk about Reggie Jackson, you got to talk about Sammy Sosa. When, yeah. When you talk about Barack Obama, you got to talk about Martin King. When uh, you, you, you talk about Drew Brees, <laughs> Come on, help me here. You, 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 you've got to talk about Tom Brady. When you say Serena, you've got to say Venus. Can I get a witness here? When you say the Apostle Paul, who was a great preacher, i got to say Terry Anderson. But when you say Jesus, yeah, he's in a class all by himself. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody like Jesus. 
Somebody else can say, can't nobody do me. Can't nobody do me like the Lord. Well, I wonder in this text, Lord, why did you wait to get them out? Why did you take so long to get them out? And I had an experience where the Lord answered my question. When my son was born, he grew up to be about four or five years old. And I went off to do a revival. And I did a revival one week, preached somewhere. That Sunday went and preached somewhere else. That other week, so I was going to be gone 14 days. And on my way, after the 14 days were over, I told my son on day one, here is a calendar, just mark the days off, and in 14 days, I'll be back home. And on that 14 day, I caught the plane in Atlanta on the way back to what then was Monroe. And I called my wife and said, I'll be there in about an hour. I want to see you. And then I want to spend time with my boy. When I got home and landed, I called her from the airport to see if she needed anything from the store. I said, are you at home? She said, yes, I'm at home. I said, well, where is my boy? She said, I sent him to his room. I said, well, why did you send him to his room? She said, he did something. She said, and I would appreciate it that you wouldn't get him out of his room until the appointed time is up. I said, I've been gone 14 days. I don't know what he did, but when I get home, I want to see you, and then I want to see my boy. And when I walked through the door, I greeted my wife like a husband greets his wife after he hadn't seen her for 14 days. And then I proceeded down the hall to my son, and my son began to come out of the room, but I thought about what his mama said, so I told him, son, you can't come out yet. Tears begin to come down his face. I said, son, you can't come out yet. He said, daddy, you've been gone for 14 days. I said, don't worry about it. Your mama said, you can't come out. I walked to his door and I opened the door and I got in the room with him. Some of y'all still ain't got him. I couldn't get him out until he had stayed in there long enough. But my love for him got in the room with him. And I believe I got some witnesses here tonight that can testify. Grab your neighbor by the hand and don't hold it like a dead fish. Don't hold it like a dish rag. But hold that hand like you've been born again. And look your neighbor in the face. Look them in the eye and say, neighbor, I've been in the fire and the Lord didn't get me out. I had to stay in the fire 
I had to stay in the fire. But tell them, neighbor, this is how I made it. The Lord got in there with me. And if the Lord got in the fire with you, and if the Lord will get in it with you, then you ain't got to wait until you get out the fire before you live your hand. You ain't got to wait to get out the fire before you do your dance. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, I ain't got to wait until the battle is over. I'm shouting. Is there anybody here that can testify? I've been through the fire. I've been through the flood. I've had some hard times. I've had some trouble sometimes. But the Lord, He brought me. Can I bother you one more time? Slip your arms around a shouting partner. Now that person ain't gonna shout with you. Go find a shouting partner and tell them, baby, I'm not worried about if things get better. I made up my mind. I'm gonna give him glory in the midst of my stuff. Glory! In the midst of my trial, glory, lift your hand and give him glory, 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 glory. Can I bother you just one more time? Grab somebody by the hand and say, Nate, I've gone through the fire and I've been through the flood. I've been broken into pieces Seen lightning flashes from above. Put up, I remember that he loves me and he cares, and he'll never. Put more on me. Well, I can I'm through. Somebody ought to help me say, Come on. I've gone to the fire and I've been. Through the flood, I've been into peace, seen light. But I put up, 
before I leave. I want to pray for you before I leave. Because he ain't going to get you out the fire yet. But I want to pray that you just hold on. Because every blessing that the Lord has for you You're going to get it while you're in the fire or because of the fire. I don't know who I'm talking to in here tonight, but I just want you to begin to just tell, lift your hands and tell God, thank you. Here's a very hard and heavy phrase. I'm going to say it slow enough for you to think about it. Lord, I thank you. Because you know what you're doing. Lord, I trust you. Because you know what you're doing. Lord, I thank you because everything you have for me, the fire can't stop it. And it's preparing me for promotion. Now you just tell him thank you however you want to. As a child, I would think of my parents and I would feel very alone. There was a deep longing to be part of my family. I would wonder why I had to be born. My father was already married when he began seeing my mother. They had a relationship which culminated in my birth. My father chose not to have any contact with me. My mother was relatively young and she gave me to my great auntie. 
but my mother also had other children that she kept. And so I grew up being told I was unacceptable. I would ask questions. I would wonder why I never saw them. No calls, no birthday card. Why did my parents not want me? My great aunt that raised me, she would reinforce that sense of rejection by telling me things like children like you, whose parents aren't married, they call them bastards. It made me feel ashamed. I mean, if your own parents don't seem to love you, why would you feel lovable by anybody else? My father, I met him literally only one time in my life. It wasn't like you see in the movies where people finally find their parents and rush into their long lost mother or father's arms. It wasn't like that for me. He was a stranger to me. I so much wanted a relationship with my dad, but I just knew better than to expect anything. I just couldn't. I remember as a little girl singing, Jesus loved me, this I know. I would wonder if he loved everybody, why he let me be born into that situation. Why someone who supposedly loved me enough to die for me didn't even love me enough to give me a family. There was a church that met in my neighborhood. I was able to walk to it. I didn't even realize I was supposed to read the Bible. I just thought I was supposed to show up to church and hear a message and go home. I learned that you were a sinner and you needed forgiveness. The church, for me, it was rules without love. I just said, forget it. I was angry with God. I didn't believe God really loved me. And I just walked away. I just hope to find happiness. I actually wound up joining the military and got married young. It only lasted a couple years. I was all in and he was not. Then I met my second husband. He was emotionally abusive. He mocked the fact that I wasn't wanted by my parents. That was very heartbreaking and shameful to me. You're depending on them to love you. I wanted to know that I was wanted, and it never happened. It was a Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. I remember it being a beautiful day. I was working for the federal government. I remember passing by a TV monitor and people were standing around it, staring at it, and so I stopped and looked at it. There was all this chaos in New York. One of the Twin Towers being on fire. There's the announcements over the PA system. Something was happening in Washington, D.C. The Pentagon had been hit. You could see the smoke from the Pentagon. Everybody's freaking out. The people don't know what's happening. They don't know why it's happening. The fear in the air, I have never felt fear like that. 
in my life. I drove home, parked my car, ran to the house, and the first thing I did was turn on the TV. By that time, there was coverage of people jumping out of the Twin Towers. And I was sitting there, stunned. At that moment, I just, I wanted God to exist so much. God, please be there. I hope you're there. I was very afraid because if there's not a God, there's no hope. Fear became the overriding emotion. The next thing I knew was, you've got to get back to church. You've got to get back to church. That Sunday, I walked through that door and from that day forward, it was full steam ahead with me and God. That church, they presented God to me in a way that I had never experienced him before. I finally was told, read your Bible, read it every day. That's where you meet Jesus. Who knew? I didn't know. I remember reading in Jeremiah where God told Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And just that phrase melted me. He became more of a person, a person with my emotions and my feelings, someone who understands me. I wanted God, I wanted him totally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, I was ready. I said, I want you to love me with an everlasting love. and not just a father, but the perfect father. It was freedom for me, freedom from rejection, freedom from lack of self-esteem, freedom from fear of being lonely. He helped me to understand, I've always been your father. You had to go through what you had to go through to get to the place where you are now, but I was always your father. And so I forgive my earthly father and I receive the love of my Heavenly Father. settled in my soul. I am content and at peace. I was welcomed into the arms of Jesus. I was welcomed into the arms of my Father. He is my home. I am lovable.
its own weird uh, level of cult, and then the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I kind of had two bubbles to break out from, uh, which I didn't realize until a lot later in life. So yeah, I didn't have many friends growing up. We were pretty isolated, uh, not just because we were in a small town, but because my family didn't want to be exposed, uh, what was going on at home. And honestly, I didn't know that what was going on at home for me and my sister wasn't normal because it was all I was used to. Um, I went through public school from kindergarten to fifth grade, and then I was pulled out and homeschooled. But for those uh, five years, five or six years, I mm, I didn't relate to many people at all. Uh, as a witness, you're not allowed to salute the flag. You're not allowed to celebrate any holidays. So whenever something was going on like that, I had to sit in the hallway by myself outside of the classroom. Every morning, uh, I was able to stand for the flag salute, but I wasn't able to put my hand on my heart or recite anything. So you can imagine the stairs. I was just a kid. So everything's a big deal when you're little. I got questions all the time, and I wasn't quite sure how to answer them except for, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And that's pretty much all I knew to say. And I know that later on, they really focused on teaching young ones how to respond to questions like that as witnesses. Uh, but growing up, I didn't really have solid answers for that. And that was pretty much my only reasoning for myself, too. Um, and I would kind of beat myself up for that, like, oh, I should have witnessed to them. I could have said something nice about Jehovah, something nice about the religion. But at the time, I didn't want to, and I was embarrassed. Um, that was really hard being in school and having everyone looking at you and, you know, as a witness, you're taught that you should be different. You should feel different because that shows that you're doing something right. And they would have the illustration of the scripture where it says, you know, Jesus was no part of the world and things like that. So we shouldn't be either. Um, and it, it felt like that. I mean, mission accomplished. I felt separate from everyone. <laughs> outside of the congregation. Uh, yeah, so there was that. Sorry if the light goes up and down. Um, I know the quality is not so good. Um, so we moved around congregations quite a bit growing up because my dad was constantly getting in trouble. He would single out sisters in the congregation to have affairs with. Um, he hurt a lot of people. He was very not he was not mentally stable. Um, so we moved a lot. Every time he was about to get in trouble, about to be cornered for something, we would move. So we went from Cleveland, Georgia to Brazelton, Georgia, like an hour away. Uh, then we moved to Florida for a time, went to three or four congregations there. And we only lived there for about five years. Then we moved back to Georgia. And that was a strange time. We moved back to Georgia, back to the same congregation that I was born in and the same trailer too, the same trailer that I grew up in that had horrible memories in it. So that was like, I was 16 at the time and I was shook. Um, I felt disgusted to be back in the same spot again, uh, which is kind of surreal. But so we moved back there, back to the same congregation. And each time we moved, my dad make, made sure to put us on a pedestal so we were always kind of like the model family in each congregation. Uh, it was my mom and dad that uh, 
My dad was constantly giving talks, um, always front and center in the congregation. He either conducted the theocratic ministry school or had a talk every week. It got to the point where he even had assembly talks every single year um, on the big TV screens with 10,000 people in the audience at assemblies and things like that, uh, all of it. And so he always made sure that we were that family, uh, the one that every witness family wanted to be in the congregation. And that was a lot of pressure for my sister and I. We, we already had a lot of pressure in general from the organization and then a lot of pressure at home to be exactly what my dad wanted us to be for him. And then, then we, on top of that, had to be go above and beyond uh, to impress everybody in the congregation. So we kind of grew up with big heads. Uh, we were put on a pedestal, um, constantly complimented as, and seen as, as examples by the other witnesses, uh, constantly giving demonstrations, giving talks. It was exhausting, to be honest, to be like looked at and examined that much. Um, I even, at 15, uh, joined the sign language congregation. I learned sign language, joined that group, helped there. Everything we did was watched, and so we were drug on stage for another demonstration, for another interview, and things like that. And it, it, I didn't like it. I didn't like growing up that way. Um, so, yeah, there was that. And, you know, after moving so much and ending up back in the same place, it was not only triggering, but just confusing because everybody else stayed in that congregation. Everybody else hadn't moved at all and nothing had really changed. And, and we, we had, we'd run around a lot and I wasn't really sure why at the time. Um, I didn't piece those things together till later in life, but yeah, I, and thinking about it now, the congregation arrangement is kind of strange um, because in the world, everybody goes through school, goes through high school, goes through college, and then you move on and then you meet new people. With the congregation, it gets super stale because it's the same people and you're forced to meet together, you know, three, four times a week, go in service together, spend all this time together, and you're forced to love each other and things like that. But in order to meet new people, all you're allowed to do is go to the next congregation or travel and go to that congregation. You know what I mean? So it's a very small community and that was always really frustrating for me so I didn't have many friends growing up um, so at 18 uh, I decided I was sick of it I was sick of living at home and being abused I had just pioneered for a year or two was frustrated with that didn't like it went through pioneer school never felt fulfilled and then uh, when I was 18, the abuse at home reached ahead. So we met with the elders, and they basically said, uh, you know, we need some physical proof that you're being hurt at home. And we didn't have that. <laughs> so we went home, prayed to Jehovah, my sister and I, my, my little sister, uh, prayed and prayed and prayed for proof, prayed actually that my dad would hit us uh, hard enough that we would have the proof. We would have a bruise. We prayed that we could find proof on his phone, that he was cheating, anything. 
any proof at all. We just needed something to bring to the next elders meeting uh, and show them like, hey, we're telling the truth. So it didn't even matter that I had a second witness. I had my sister and she had me. Even then that wasn't enough because, and I think deep down they just didn't want to remove him as an elder and a speaker because they used him so much, um, which is so shallow and petty. Um, so eventually we got the proof in the form of pornography of teenagers, my sister and I, our ages, that he was watching. Uh, so we brought that proof. We brought the list of websites, a screenshot we had taken of his phone. We brought that to the elders. And even then, um, they refused to remove him from his assembly talk that was that weekend. So their excuse was that it was too short of notice to remove him and to meet with him and handle things. So we go to the assembly that weekend and lo and behold, my dad comes on stage and his face is on the big TV screen. And we're just sitting in the audience like, holy crap, he's still up there. And I thought back to our last elders meeting and they had warned us, they were like, look, your dad's probably not gonna do that good of a job up there because he doesn't have Jehovah's Holy Spirit anymore. But you know what? He did the same. He did great. He was charming as hell, uh, told his jokes, made the audience laugh, um, got through his entire talk. Everyone applauded. You know, same old thing. And my sister and I were just sitting in the audience, like sick to our stomachs, thinking, the elders know now. They have proof of what he's doing. Uh, and he's still up there still being patted on the back when he gets down off the stage and things like that. So that was sickening. We were just looking around. Like, I couldn't even look at the big TV screen. I couldn't look at the stage. I was just sick. Um, so a few days after that, they started meeting with him. And, of course, my parents freaked out. Uh, I remember my mom screaming at my sister and I, like, do you realize what you've done to our family? And uh, do you really want the elders to know about our sex life? And I was like, Okay, so mom knows about the abuse, obviously. Um, yeah, that was a lovely conversation. So there were so many things that happened back to back during that time, and things were kind of reaching ahead and getting more intense at home. So my dad, I remember at one point, was like, you know what, I, I want to fix this. I want to make it up to you guys, um, to you girls. So I'm going to take you all for a nice drive up in the mountains um, next weekend. So you can, you know, find it in your hearts to forgive me. I'm going to like shower you with love or whatever. But his whole demeanor with it was very, uh, how do I put this? Very, I don't, just dark. It was very dark. My sister and I just had a bad feeling about it. So we had one more elders meeting before that weekend. And I was like, look, I'm not comfortable going on this drive with him. I feel like he might just drive us off a cliff to be completely honest. And my sister actually felt the same way, which I didn't know. Um, and they were like, okay, well, if things reach ahead before then, they were like, try to go, try to respect your father. Uh, but if things get bad during the week before then, pack a go bag and have it ready to go. And I remember asking the brothers like, well, where are we gonna go? And they were like, oh, well, we'll make arrangements. Just like call us and, you know, it'll be fine. And I was like, should I call the cops? 
And they were like, oh, I don't think that's necessary. Um, if you truly feel that you're in danger, just have your go bag ready and, you know, get to your car and just, uh, you know, drive somewhere. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> I was 17, uh, going on 18, super sheltered. Didn't have any friends nearby. Didn't have, barely knew how to drive <laughs> at the time. And I was borrowing using a car from someone else in the congregation that wasn't mine. And, and I was just thinking, yeah, but like, what if he comes at us with, I don't know, a knife, you know, your brain goes to the worst. And I'm just thinking, I'm just supposed to like casually grab a backpack from my room without him noticing and get in my car. That's not how that works in an abusive household. You're watched and we wouldn't be allowed to leave. Uh, so yeah, that was interesting. Um, and things did reach ahead. Uh, my sister and I thought maybe we could talk some sense into my mom. So we got some proof that dad was cheating on her yet again. And we just assumed that my mom didn't know because she was kind of unaware most of the time. Uh, so one night we were like, mom, I think you deserve to know, like, dad's cheating on you and we showed her the pictures we took of dad's phone and she didn't cry she didn't even really flinch she just kind of like stared at us from the doorway of my room and then walked away got in the car and left and left for hours and she didn't come back until like one in the morning in the meantime my dad came home from work and was freaking out and uh calling the brothers and I remember hearing him in the yard going I just don't know why she would do this I didn't haven't done anything and you know we were healing as a family and talking things out and everything's fine can you can you tell her to come home and sure enough the elders backed him up and they called my mom and told her to come home so she did to this day I don't know where she went um but yeah so that was interesting that was the first time my mom ever left his side for that long because for the most part she supported and wholeheartedly growing up um so during this time we heard from our cousins in Pennsylvania which we were never really close to our relatives either growing up so we we didn't have any real connections with people at all honestly uh we were very shut closed off and sheltered um so I remember we got some messages from my uncle, who was also an elder, him and his family and my relatives, they're all witnesses. Uh, and we heard from them saying, hey, your cousin's getting married, which he was only 19 at the time. Uh, but he's getting married and we want you guys to be there. We want you to be here for the wedding. And I thought, that's so strange. We haven't seen them in years, but like, cool. We actually get to go somewhere. Let's go. And of course, my parents are like, no. We're not going. So then I remember my uncle contacting us again, like, hey, we at least want, you know, Taylor and Casey, the girls, to come to the wedding. And I was like, oh, my gosh, could we actually get to travel somewhere, just us? That would be the most exciting thing. Because I, up until then, I had only been on a plane one other time in my life, and that was uh, for the one amazing vacation we had as a family when I was, like, 12. So I was like thrilled. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. We get to go somewhere. And what do you know? My parents said, 
No. So I don't know what got into my uncle's head, but he bought us tickets anyway. And to this day, I think, you know, if there is some higher power, that was at work in that moment because we weren't even close to them. I don't know why he wanted us to be there so bad, my family, um, but he bought us tickets anyway. So at that point, my parents couldn't say no. So I remember the drive to the airport. It was a couple weeks after that. Um, and after fight after fight at home of why did you go to the elders about our problems and stuff like that. And my sister and I were just exhausted. Um, and we were going up to Pennsylvania for the week for my cousin's wedding. And on the drive to the airport, I remember my parents saying, hey, so we're not going to talk about anything that our family has gone through with them, right? Like, you're not going to mention any of this. We're fine. Uh, I don't want you talking about anything personal, actually, with our family. I want you to go uh, have fun at the wedding and come straight home. So that, that was our instructions. And I'm 18 at this point. My sister is not quite 16. She was still 15 at the time. So we get to the airport, and... I remember it came time to say goodbye and we were about to go through customs and stuff and my parents didn't really hug us and they didn't, they didn't even really say goodbye. My dad looked at me and he said, be good. And they turned and left. And I was like, this is strange. And I, I remember telling my sister, I was like, hey, once we get in line, we have to turn back and wave so they think that we're, we're cool, you know, so they don't get mad that we didn't, that we won't miss them. <laughs> things like that you know in reality we were so thrilled to get away from them for a week but we turned back around and they were already gone like I don't know where they were uh yeah I thought that was so strange um so we get on the plane we go to Pennsylvania and of course eventually my uncle's like what's wrong with you guys my aunt and uncle they were kind of like looking at us like you guys are super depressed you seem shook um is there something going on at home and we talked, uh, disobeyed my parents, <laughs> thank God. Um, yeah, we told them what was going on and, and um, my uncle called my dad. He did a three-way call with one of my other uncles and they both called my dad and were like, hey, we wanted to talk to you about this. The girls are saying some things that are happening at home and we just wanted to see if that was true and if you need help or something of that sort. And I remember I was sitting in the room and my uncle was on the phone with, with my dad and I could hear both my parents start screaming on the other line. I couldn't even hear what they were saying, but they were freaking out. And my uncle, you know, put his hand on the phone and he looked at my sister and I and he was like, do you want to stay here? Do you need to stay here? Like, do you, do you really want to go home at the end of this week? And my sister and I said, no. So we didn't. And I'm going to stop the story here. Uh, oof, that was a lot. Hopefully I didn't jump around too much. Hopefully you understood, you know, how things went chronologically. Um, if any of you have questions or need more detail on one of the things I talked about, just let me know in the comments below. Um, and yeah, I may go ahead and record part two now, but I, it won't be out for a few days. So. I hope you enjoyed this.
let me know and um, subscribe, like if you want, no pressure. And I will see you in part two. Bye guys.
Falero spent much of his life in a gang, trapped in a vicious cycle of violence. Abner was five when his father, a pastor, left him, his mother, and his brothers for another woman. He knew only one way to cope with the feelings of abandonment and rejection. He's the person I looked up to. He's the person I worshipped. He was my everything. I tried to block the reality of my father's not coming back. I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't understand it. I was too young. But as Abner watched his mother struggle to provide for her family, he became angry and violent. Violence got me what I wanted. It got me protection, a way of me releasing my stress. The higher the level, the easier it was for me to sleep at night. Abner was kicked out of every school he attended and by 16 had joined a gang. The gang was my family. It was the way I found my finances, my protection. We all believed in the same thing, violence. For the next 10 years, Abner was in and out of prison more than 30 times for armed robbery, assault, and a number of other violent crimes. I was miserable. I wanted out but I didn't know how to get out of it. This is who I am, this is what I do. It's my destiny. Either I'm gonna die, or I'm gonna spend the rest of my life in prison. Then at 26, Abner was arrested for possessing a weapon while being a convicted felon. He was sentenced to seven years in a maximum security prison. I didn't know guilt. I didn't know remorse. I didn't know emotions. It was like I was numb, numb to, to who I was. With little more than a year left in his sentence, Abner got caught up in a prison brawl, and as a result, would serve the rest of his time in solitary confinement. 23 hours locked down a day, seven days a week. I hit rock bottom. It felt like me committing suicide would be the easy way out. Then one day, a guard passed him a Bible. And I just threw it to the side. But for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I knew that Bible was in my cell. It was almost saying like, I'm here, God is here. Eventually, he picked it up and started reading. And I start struggling with myself. I'm the worst of the worst. 
And can there be a God that can forgive me right now? And it was a tug of war of which way do I go in life? And how do I go about it? Abner says while he was reading the Bible one night, he started saying things. I saw fire, like I was burning, like everything around me was on fire. And I got on my knees and I cried and cried and cried. I can't be like my father because my father was a Christian and a a pastor. That's not me. I will never be like my father. And the Lord was calling me and saying, you know, I, I got you, you know, you're looking for a father and I got you. I'm your father. So it was like for one point in my life, for once in my life, since I was five years old, someone appreciated me. Someone loved me. So it was like a ton of bricks gone. It was like gone. That was the the day that the process started. In the two years after his release, Abner tried to live a godly life. But when he couldn't find work, he got discouraged and slipped back into old patterns. He got busted for robbing someone and landed in jail for another three years. I started cleaning my act up. No more crimes. No more crimes. So I got on my knees and prayed. I give you what I have left. Once again, God freed me. Abner says God also freed him from his anger and helped him forgive his father. Today he's married and has a son. He shares his story at churches and prisons, telling people that God is always with them. I see Jesus now as my father figure. I had a father the whole time that was looking out for me, that was protecting me, and it wasn't that he left me. It was that I took the blindfolds off. of life sent down from glory many things you were on us a holy king a carpenter but you are the living word come on Come on, Houston, you can say it one time with us. Friends, send down some glory. Many things. Come on, somebody say it.
together. This is what we like to call you, Jesus, Jesus. That's what we call you, yeah. You were born in a manger, but on a tree you died to save man. The Jesus. That's what we share with you 
um, a little bit about what I experienced as a witch um, during Halloween and what I think it means to Christians. So when I was younger, um, I celebrated Samhain on October 31st, which is uh, Halloween. And for witches or pagans, uh, October 31st or Samhain, it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I, um, is a high holy day in their wheel of the year. They have many Sabbaths during the year, but October 31st is one of the very special high holy days. Uh, witches say that that is the day where the veil is thinnest between the worlds. It is when they use it to perform rituals, to contact the dead, to talk to their ancestors, and um, they just basically celebrate death. So for witches or pagans, death is not something that they fear. It is something that um, is to be revered. It is part of the cycle of life. And um, most witches or pagans consider that when you die, you're either reincarnated or you go on to another realm, a spirit realm, where your spirit would live on, and, but your physical body would have passed away. Um, and so on October 31st, I have done uh, these rituals and spells to contact the dead, and it is very real. Um, are entering into a state where you are affecting the spiritual world, you're becoming a part um, of a spiritual realm that you cannot see with your eyes, but is there. And um, the intent is not to do harm or be negative, but I I do believe that it is actually demonic without witches or pagans knowing. Um, when I did it, I had I had no idea what I was really doing. It was just it was what you do as a witch. You you're high holy days and your cycle of the year and your wheel of life they're they're just what you go around and and that and the goddess and it's just so October 31st is a huge celebration it's also the Celtic New Year and so it's it's a big celebration and preparing into winter solstice or Yule so as a new believer, um, I was very convicted by God that I should not celebrate October 31st, Halloween. Um, I, When I was younger, I was very into um, celebrating the Sabbaths as a witch. But as I got older and I had kids, I moved more into celebrating the traditional holidays, Halloween and Christmas and Easter. But I always, you know, in my heart and my mind, I was celebrating Samhain and winter solstice because that was what I felt was true and right. And I just wanted to have my kids have more of a normal uh, growing up, so to speak. So we just did what I did when I was growing up in Christmas and Halloween. So God convicted me very strongly that I should not celebrate Halloween. And um, I really just want to talk a little bit about that. I feel that um, to... Celebrate Halloween as a Christian is to really um, enter into ways of the world that we were not meant to do. God has told us, I am holy, and so I want you to be holy. 
he's told us that he set us apart. We are a special people. And when we began to start practicing in the ways of the world and paganism, then we're entering into uh, that darkness, that dark spiritual realm that is around us that is unseen, but it is very real. And it looks very innocent and fun as we dress our kids up in costumes and just go trick-or-treating. But unfortunately, October 31st is a day where so much evil is being practiced that even though we are not trying to participate and have no evil intent, we, we actually are being involved and participating in the evil going around. And I know it's very hard to understand that, as someone who's never experienced that dark realm, that other side, that um, dark spiritual force or world that is actually right around us. But um, it's very real. And if you think about um, stories in the Bible, even um, Daniel, when Daniel is standing, I believe he's standing by the river and the Archangel Michael, I believe it was, comes and tells us, I'm sorry, I've heard your prayers, but uh, I was fighting a battle and I wasn't able to get here. I mean, there's stories just like that. So the spiritual realm is real and it's dangerous. And in order to um, protect ourselves from entering into unintentionally uh, this evilness, and this this otherworldliness that is around us um, to not show the demons you know that are out gallivanting around and especially on that night but they're out there anyway that we are set apart and holy that we have reverence for our God then I believe with you know all my heart that our God, our Lord and Savior, does not want us to participate in this. Now, I have no judgment for Christians or anyone that, that celebrates Halloween because I understand that coming, I've been there, I've been where you are, and um, it, it seems like it's all fun. But unfortunately, there's a lot of things that seem like they're fun and we don't know the other side of it. So I just wanted to share a little bit of that information with you and um, hope that it might help you. And so thanks. There's a voice cries out in the silence, searching for a heart that will love him. Longing for a child that will give them their all, give it all, he wants it all. And there's a God that walks over the earth, he's searching for a heart that is desperate. And longing for a child that will give them their all, give it all, he wants it all. And he said, love me, love me. Your whole heart, he wants it all today. Serve me, serve me with your life now. He wants it all today. Bow down. 
it all today. He wants it all today. He wants it all today. He wants it all. There's a God that walks over the earth. He's searching for hearts that are desperate. Longing for a child that will give him their own. Give it all. He wants it all. Child that will give them their own gift. 